Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, we've got a couple of announcements to remind everybody of. First of all, this Saturday, February the 7th at 6 p.m., there is a the uh, annual Campanile Fellowship Banquet is going to be at Bethel Presbyterian Church, and they have a sign-up place on the campanile.org uh, website if you're interested in going. On Saturday, February the 14th, there will be a ladies' pr- I have been corrected. It's not a prayer brunch. It is a Valentine tea. So there is a Valentine tea for the ladies' prayer group at uh, the Westfall home, and there's a sign-up sheet and map in the kitchen, and that's at 10.30 in the morning. And on February the 21st, which is a Saturday night, we'll be having our uh, winter family night and film to be announced. So we have a pretty full schedule. And then don't forget the Chafer Conference is coming up March 9, 10, and 11. So we are starting to gear up. For that. And then on Sunday, February the 22nd, we'll be having our annual congregational meeting following the morning worship service on that morning. Now that we've had all our announcements, let's close in prayer. (laughs) Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we should have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the word to uh, so the Holy Spirit can make these things applicable to us and that we can, at the time, is profitable for our own spiritual growth. So uh, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer that I will Uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a tremendous comfort that we know that we have we're able to come into your presence because Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin, that his once-for-all sacrifice is complete, the veil is torn, and we have access to your throne of grace. Father, we have prayed this evening in prayer meeting for those that are ill in the congregation, those who are facing medical challenges and even the possibility of death soon. We just pray for them and their families. Continue to lift them up before you that you would be a real comfort to them in each of their different circumstances. Father, now as we continue our study with Elijah, we pray that as we study how Elijah 
was trained by you, how he faced his trials by trusting in you. We pray that uh, that which made him strong will make us strong as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings 17, just review James 5.17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What Elijah did, we can do, because Elijah wasn't doing it through some uh, extra special uh, empowerment by the Holy Spirit. That would relate to his gift of being a prophet, but not in terms of his uh, spiritual life and his prayer life. And that is what undergirds chapter 17, according to James chapter 5. Now, prayer isn't brought out specifically in James in uh, 1 Kings 17, but because of what James 5 says, we know that's the dynamic that is strengthening uh, Elijah during his time of testing there. Now, uh, Elijah lived during the time of Ahab. He, is, he and his successor, Elisha, are the focal point of the centerpiece of the book of Kings, which is, in our Bible, First and Second Kings. And it is their challenge to the northern kingdom of Israel because of the way that they have slipped into paganism and have adopted the thinking of the uh, pagans around them who have worshipped uh, the idols, specifically the fertility religions as exemplified in the worship of Baal and the Asherah. And there's a number of important lessons that we learn just in terms of Christians living in the midst of a pagan culture. And if you hadn't noticed, our culture is getting more and more pagan uh, every day. And the, the pagans are becoming more and more vocal in their opposition to Christians and they are doing what they can to try to uh, minimize, marginalize, and uh, limit the participation of Christians in uh, anything in relation to our, uh, our nation. And on the other hand, someone sent me an article today from uh, a columnist, and I don't remember his, the, the columnist's name, but the point that this columnist was making was why is it that Christians have become so lazy and they are justifying their laziness through their view of prophecy. Well, we shouldn't get involved. We don't need to uh, be informed about the political issues. We don't need to vote. We don't need to be uh, involved in the culture because Jesus is coming back. And uh, so many have bought into a, an uninformed, non-biblical, theologically anemic pop religion that has already assumed that Jesus is coming back and it's going to be in our generation. And so they've sort of given up and said, well, let's just sit back on the hillside and watch the whole culture go to hell in a handbag and and clap and rejoice because Jesus will come back and we won't really experience uh, the collapse of the culture. And that is as far from being a biblical uh, value as you can possibly get. And yet there are people who have, uh, many, many believers have bought into that. They are just convinced in their own thinking. And you may be right, but that's just personal opinion. 
And that's as far as it can go that Jesus is coming back. But only a fool makes decisions in life or decisions in terms of national policy based on an assumption that Jesus is coming soon and we're the rapture generation. Because we may not be. Jesus may not come back for 50 or 100 years, 200 years, 300 years. So we have to live our spiritual life in terms of accountability as if Jesus is coming back tomorrow. But we have to work hard, get educated, plan for the future, lay aside uh, money for retirement, for health care needs and other things like that, as if Jesus isn't coming back for a thousand years. And that is the path of wisdom, because we don't know. That's the doctrine of imminency. Imminency means the rapture is a signless event, and no one knows the day or the hour when Jesus is going to return for the church. And to think that it looks close because the stage is being set, um, is it's not set enough. We won't know that it's set enough until the Lord returns and the rapture occurs. So we have to understand that, that we, we can't let, and that's really a form of fatalism. There's been such, a, such an increase in popularity of, of five-point Calvinism in the last 30 years in this nation. And what's embedded within the rationalistic approach to, of five-point Calvinism is a, a, a pagan fatalism. And that's really what you hear is people have already decided Jesus is coming back, so let's not do anything because if, if, if God really wanted the, our nation to survive and to, to prosper, then he would, uh, he, would, he would make it happen. And, you know, that's the same kind of uh, screwball thinking that uh, you had among the regular, the Calvinistic Baptists in England in the 18th century in the 1700s that responded to William Carey's missionary trip to India when he came back and reported on the number of uh, Indians that had been converted, who had come to Christ, trusted in him as a savior. Uh, The response from the leadership in in the denomination was young man, if God wanted them to be saved, he would do it without any help from you or I. Pure fatalism. And that's paganism. And the problem that the church in America, and because we are the leader in the world, the, the world church has, is an anemic theology based on assimilation and compromise with the thinking of the world. And we're not astute enough, alert enough, spiritually positive enough to take the time to learn how to properly evaluate our own thinking to see how, how much it's been impacted by the paganism that's around us. And so we see some tremendous lessons in weeding out paganism in this whole episode that we'll study with Elijah and Elisha and how believers are to engage in cultural confrontation with pagan thought. Uh, And that's another part of the paganism you see in the world today is a passivity that goes along. And the passivity is the flip side of the fatalism. Well, you know, we just got to sit back, fold our hands, let God do whatever he's going to do. Well, wait a minute. We have mandates in Scripture to be salt and light and to do things, not just to sit back, fold our hands, and go sit in a prayer closet somewhere. Now, there's, I'm not minimizing the importance of prayer, but 
my, the best simple example I have, you can pray all day long and all week long for that grass to get cut in the summer. But until you go outside and actually put gas in the lawnmower and pull the crank, it's not going to get cut. There is a There are two sides to prayer. One side is that we fulfill the responsibilities that God has given us. The other side is that where our responsibilities stop, we trust God and we bring that before the Lord in prayer. And we have responsibilities in terms of the world in which we live, in terms of promoting the gospel, and in terms of being involved as citizens of a nation, and which means being informed of the issues, uh, communicating with our political representatives, and, uh, and getting involved because that's how our constitution, our political system is set up. And when Christians sit back and remove themselves from the process and then want to throw stones at what happens in the culture around them, well, that's just, you know, just the height of irrationality and shows the weakness and the lack of good teaching going on. It is a, there's a passivity that is not acceptable, and there is a view of fatalism that is not acceptable. We have to trust God. That's the key, but we have to do it in the right way. We get some great examples here uh, with uh, how the Lord works and how Elijah works. So we come to 1 Kings 17.1, where we're introduced to Elijah, who just pops on the scene, comes into the presence of Ahab, and announces that God is going to judge the nation and uh, bringing about a drought. And he is referred to as Elijah the Tishbite. And we have seen that Elijah is uh, based on two Hebrew words, El for God, that's the generic term God, like our English G-O-D, and Yah from the first syllable in the proper name of Yahweh. And this is why, one reason we are we know at least how half of God's name is pronounced because we have this suffix in so many names in the um, among among the Jews: Zechariah, Jeremiah, Elijah. The that Y A H or J A H ending is the first syllable in that two-syllable name for uh, that's the proper name of God indicating his self-existence. And that is important to note that there's these little bitty threads that run through here uh, that the name of God as Yahweh is comes out from the Hebrew verb Hayah, which means to be. And when uh, uh, Moses asked God for a little more clarification on who he was so that when he went to the Israelites in their bondage in Egypt and said that God sent him. He said, well, who should I say sent me so that they'll, uh, they'll accept me? God said, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. That comes out of that word. He's the self-existent one. And that's the same uh, emphasis that you have in this, uh, this opening verse, in the opening statement, rather, by Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives. He is the living God, the self-existent God. He is the creator God who created the heavens and all that's in them, the earth and all that's in them, the seas and all that's in them. And so Elijah uh, comes on the scene, and this is our first introduction to him. But Elijah isn't confined to just the Old Testament. 
And it's sort of interesting now how the things, certain things in our studies uh, intersect. For right now, so I have to say this because there are people who are going to listen to just First Kings as a series or Hebrews as a series or Revelation as a series and not get the benefit of the intersection between these lessons. But right now we're in Sunday morning in Revelation 11. We're going to be introduced to these two witnesses that come on the scene during the tribulation period. And what is said about the, the ministry of those two witnesses who stand in opposition to the Antichrist during the tribulation period is that uh, they call down fire from heaven and bring on plagues. And the two things that they are said to do are typical of what Moses did in bringing, and, and bringing on the plagues in Egypt and what Elijah did in calling down fire from heaven. And so most uh, believe that the most likely understanding of who these two witnesses are are that they are Elijah and Moses. So background for this coming Sunday morning is what we're looking at in 1 Kings 17 and following, and also because Revelation 11 begins with a command to John to take this measuring rod and to measure the temple of God, all that work that we've been doing in Hebrews on Thursday night in dealing with the tabernacle and the temple has prepared us so that as we get into this chapter, we have a much fuller appreciation and understanding for the dynamics that are going on there. So it's just fun to see how, how uh, it all comes together. I just love it when God's plan comes together. Looks so good. Okay, so we need to look at Elijah in the flow of biblical history and prophecy. One of the first and most important things that we see prophetically related to Elijah is that he is uh, predicted to come and must come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is based on Malachi uh, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This will be quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 17 at the time that he is on the, after he's talking to the disciples, uh, after he's been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses and Elijah appeared glorified to James and, uh, uh, James and John and, and the Lord. So Mal- Malachi 4, 5, and 6, uh, Peter, James, and John, rather. Uh, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, God says, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the term day of the Lord is a, the great and terrible day of the Lord is a technical term for the final part of the tribulation period. The tribulation period as a whole is sometimes referred to as day of the Lord. Day of the Lord, it can be a, just a generic term for a time of divine judgment. Most of the time, though, the term day of the Lord refers to the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, the entire uh, seven-year period. However, there are a number of places where you have uh, sort of an intensified description of it as the great and terrible day of the Lord, and this focuses on the final period of the tribulation, the last half, the three-and-a-half-year period that occurs uh, in the second half that it, Jesus refers to as the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24. And it, the Great Tribulation is distinguished from the Tribulation, and the Tribulation is distinct from Tribulation. We all go through Tribulation and testing. What always irritates me 
is people who don't listen well and critique us because they think that people who believe in the rapture just want to escape tribulation. Well, after 2,000 years of adversity and persecution and trouble and living in this world system, I don't think there's any Christian who has brain cells that recognize one another that thinks that we're going to escape tribulation. We're not going to escape tribulation as long as we're, as we're in this world. We are going to encounter tribulation. Jesus states that clearly in, in John 17 in his high priestly prayer. But we are going not, we're not going to be in the tribulation, which is an intensified period of judgment, also known as the 70th week of Daniel from Daniel chapter 9 and uh, described in Revelation chapters 4 through 19. The great and dreadful day of the Lord, though, is a term for the last half of the, that tribulation period, also known as the Great Tribulation. So we're told that Elijah is going to come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Others might restrict that a little more and say it's just the Battle of Armageddon or the Armageddon campaign, uh, which is the focal point, as we'll see when we get there, of the vile judgments, those those last vile judgments, especially the last four, all, all really focus on that Armageddon campaign. But at least before that point, Elijah is going to reappear, according to Malachi 4, uh, verses 5 and 6. But what's he going to do? He is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Well, how is he going to do that? And what exactly is being said here? Now, this idea of turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse, indicates harmony being restored to uh, the Israelites, to the remnant, to the believing Jews at the tribulation period. This is new covenant language. Now, the question that we have to ask is and answer is how... Is Elijah going to do this? How does his ministry accomplish this? And in what sense does he do that? Does Elijah, because another question you should be asking is, well, I thought that's what the Messiah does when the Messiah comes. So how does Elijah accomplish that? Does he bring it about fully, or is he simply initiating a process in preparation for its ultimate fulfillment when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. And I think we get some illumination on this from Matthew 17, verse 11, which is when Jesus is talking to his disciples after he's been on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he gives further explanation. He says, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Now, the Greek word for restore is the verb uh, apo. Uh, Apokathistemi. See, that's easy for me to say. Apokathistemi. And it has the idea of restoring or even reestablishing something. Now, this is where we're going to get into some real tricky theology that, that there's a lot of discussion about between about six people who actually have studied enough to be able to think intelligently through this. And I'm not being facetious. It's just that unless you really get a lot of your ducks in a row, you just can't quite get to the point of, of really thinking through some of these details. How is, what, what does this mean to reestablish or restore? Are these two prophets 
going to restore the Levitical sacrifices. If it's restoration, that means to put back in place something that hasn't been in place. So does this have to do with the sacrifices in the temple? That's what we're going to get into Sunday morning. Maybe by then God will speak to me and I will be able to answer the question. Or maybe not. Uh, I don't know that uh, I'm, I'm not clear that that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, some think that may be it because, well, why in the world would, or, or, or on the other hand, it would be uh, establishing new covenant sacrifices. Well, if the new covenant's not going to really be instigated until the return of Christ, why would they be starting new covenant sacrifices three and a half or seven years before Christ actually comes back and instigates the new covenant. But then the response to that is, well, why would they go backward if the Levitical uh, redemptive sacrifices ended with the cross? Why would they go back and instigate those? So it, it, it's, a, it's a tough thing to think through because we don't have enough uh, information. And I think that it doesn't have anything to do with the sacrifices because the, the, the word that is, the Greek word that's used here, apokathistemi, is the Septuagint translation of shuv. That's the other word I had there on that slide, the word at the bottom, shuv. That's the Hebrew word that's used in the Malachi for six passage. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And when the rabbis translated that into the Greek of the Septuagint, they use the Greek verb apokathistemi. So the, what, what Elijah is doing, Jesus is just, Jesus is simply quoting from the Septuagint here from Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And so what Malachi is just saying is that there's going to be this impact from Elijah's ministry in terms of, of uh the, the fathers turning to the children, the, ch- the children to their fathers. My question is, and unfortunately Greek just isn't precise enough to do this, and I've gone through the grammars, the future tense that Jesus uses here in Matthew 17, 11, just simply states a future event. There is no such thing. In other tenses, you have something called an inceptive uh, present or an inceptive aorist. And that means it, it should be translated beginning to do something. And the grammars don't have a, uh, that category for the future. It's just undefined future action. So it's undefined. That's the key term. It could have that implication, and I think it does, that, that Elijah is coming first and will begin to restore things. I, I think that's really the idea because Elijah is not the one who, res, who, who is going to implement the whole process it's the messiah when he returns the role of elijah like the role of john the baptist is simply to be the one who prepares the way and is the is the precursor for that but jesus makes it clear that elijah is still future to his time uh, and this is about two-thirds of the way through his public ministry so that means Elijah still, this, this hasn't occurred yet. Uh, the Jews recognize this when they celebrate Passover because they always leave an empty seat at the table and they have a glass of wine poured in the Elijah cup for Elijah. The last thing they do is they send a kid out and open the door and look up and down the street and see if Elijah's coming. And if Elijah's not coming, then they come back in, they finish in prayer. So this is, um, 
This is the key element we have to focus on here is Elijah is not just past, but Elijah, uh, Elijah is future. Second thing we see that relates to this is Elijah parallels uh, John the Baptist. There are parallels with John the Baptist. The first thing we see that brings this out is that when Gabriel appears to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, when Zechariah is serving in the temple at the altar of incense, he goes in uh, during his cycle to serve at the altar of incense and to light the incense, and suddenly the angel Gabriel appears to him. At this time, his wife Elizabeth has not been able to have a child. She's been barren. And Gabriel is going to announce that they are going to, that she's going to become pregnant and have a child and defines the role of that child, John the Baptist, in this manner. Luke 117 states, he will also go before him in the, before him, that is the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now this is one of those interesting little what if issues in scripture that relate to the fact that that God in his omniscience knows all the knowable. That means he not only knows what will happen, but he knows what might happen. He knows what would happen if you had decided to stay home tonight, or maybe you're staying home tonight instead of coming to class, and he knows that if you had come to Bible class, you would have had a wreck, and what that would have entailed, and who would have been heard, and all the various things you could extrapolate from that. God knows all the many different variables and possibilities that could occur from any number of different decisions. And so he doesn't just know what will happen. He knows what might happen, what could have happened, and what would have happened under different circumstances. And so that is um, because men have volition and have real volition and make di- can make different decisions. So... Uh, we're told that in, that in terms of God's initial legitimate plan and offer for Israel, Elijah is coming first in, the, in John the Baptist. And his, he, he, he's going to come, uh, Luke one seventeen says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's right out of Malachi 4, 5, and 6. And he goes, Gabriel goes on to say, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So from the very beginning, there's this connection between John the Baptist and Elijah. They had a similar manner of dress. This is seen in 2 Kings 1, 7 and 8, where we have a description of Elijah's dress. And this is when uh, they, uh, they come to, a man comes to Ahab and says that he saw Elijah, ran into him on the road, and Ahab says to, to them, what kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? And they answered him and said, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. The he there at the last sentence is, is Ahab. Ahab immediately recognized the unique style of dress, that Elijah had a leather, uh, just a leather uh, girdle or leather uh, covering, 
that uh, was wrapped about his body and just just tied off. And so he immediately knew that this was Elijah the Tishbite. Now, John, and I didn't get this verse up on the screen, Matthew 3, 4, we read, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he has the same tailor that Elijah had. And he wears the same clothes, that uh, type of clothes that Elijah had. So he is clearly identified by his dress, by his uh, fact that he is a loner out in the wilderness as Elijah was, that he is in the same pattern as Elijah. Uh, they had similar opposition from the political powers and especially the women. For Elijah... Uh, the opposition came from Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel had a price on his head, and Jezebel hated Elijah with every ounce of her being. And let me make an application here. We'll con- go through this a little more. But if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the very fact that you believe in God and believe in the Bible and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ means that there are some people in this world who are negative to the truth and negative to God who think that the greatest thing that will ever happen in their life is to see you dead just because your very presence is, a, is an affront to their arrogance. And it doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how right you are. It doesn't matter how sweet you are. It doesn't matter how you express your, your beliefs or what you say. Those people hate you because your presence and your testimony, without even saying anything, uh, pricks their conscience to the, because they're trying to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and your very presence keeps getting that truth to pop up and irritate them. And so they hate us and it's irrational, but it, it, it is spiritual and this is the mentality that is seen in the earth dwellers uh, during the tribulation period. And it's the kind of attitude that Jezebel had uh, in, the, in uh, the time of Elijah. And so she sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also. That was a common uh, Hebraistic oath. May God do to me. If, if I don't do this to you, may God do it to me. So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, that is one of these prophets of Baal and the Asherah that Elijah had just executed, if, uh, if I don't make your life like one of them by tomorrow. In other words, she's giving him a death threat. Uh, may God kill me if I, don't have you, if I don't get you dead by tomorrow. And so Elijah girded up his loins and uh, left Dodge, as it were. He headed south for the Sinai wilderness. And at that point, he gets out of fellowship. He wasn't out of fellowship before. We'll get into that. Uh, there are some who've said that uh, Elijah was wrong to execute the false prophets. He wasn't. That's the job of a prophet under the Mosaic law. The false prophet, once he demonstrated that they were false prophets, they were guilty. It was a capital offense. And so it is the it was the right thing for him to execute them. Um, it was not the right thing for him to become fearful, though, of Jezebel and head south. And that's part of his uh, uh, sin nature that we'll see. 
So Jezebel had it in for Elijah and Herodias, the wife of um, uh, Herod, has it in for uh, John the Baptist. Herod had laid hold of John and bound him, put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. I didn't say Herod's wife, but it's Philip's wife. Uh, He had um, gotten rid of her first husband and married her, and so she felt guilty. And see, that's the problem, is people who have real guilt and know that they are guilty are going to just hate those whose very presence reminds them of their guilt. And Christians will always have that effect on some people. And it doesn't matter what you do. And this is uh, what happened in this case, just the very presence of John, because John had made it clear that her marriage to Philip was illegitimate. He didn't have to say anything else. Twenty years later, she'd have been just as mad, because as long as he was alive, it was a reminder of what he had said, what he stood for, a moral system that had absolutes outside of space and time, and the fallen man that's rejected God just cannot abide that. And so, because John said that um, oh, that Herod could marry her, I, I get that got that confused. I really butchered that, didn't I? Herod wanted to marry um, his brother Philip's wife, and so they got divorced, and she comes over to marry him. And John is saying that's illegal. So she gives, um, talks, Herod dances before him and he's so pleased and it's his birthday that he promised to give her whatever she would ask in order to um, just reward her for her dancing. So having been prompted by her mother, who must have been a real piece of work, said, give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. So people in the world are going to hate you no matter what you do simply because of who you are and your relationship with God. A good term for them is theophobes. You know, we always hear about homophobes. Well, they're theophobes. They hate God. They're afraid of God. And uh, they hate him and anybody who's aligned with him profoundly. Does that mean that we back off? Elijah didn't back off. Does that mean that we don't confront them with their error? Elijah didn't keep him from confronting them with their error. Uh, Not at all. So uh, we just have to understand where they're coming from. We may not convince them, but God in his grace constantly gives the gospel and reaches out to those theophobic earth dwellers all through the tribulation, he never stops because God's character means that he wants all to be saved. He's going to give them chance and opportunity and chance again and again and again because God is not going to take pleasure in the punishment and the death of the wicked. Now, a third thing we see a parallel between Elijah and John the Baptist, is they both anoint their successors in the Jordan River. Uh, They both anoint their successors in the Jordan River. Now, the episode that I'm talking about for Elijah is when he anoints Elisha to uh, to be his successor. And this is seen in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 
and we'll start in verse, I've got verse 9 here to put on the screen. Verse 9, So it was when they had crossed over, that is, crossed over the Jordan, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? Because Elisha, Elijah knows that he is about to go face to face with the Lord. And Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, that is Elijah. So he said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, and here is the issue. He said, if you see me, this was a test. If you see me when I am taken from you. In other words, if you're able to see what happens when the Lord takes me, if your eyes are open so that you can see what's transpiring in the spiritual realm, then it shall be so for you. In other words, God will have answered your request and you'll get a double portion of the Spirit. But if not, if you don't see me, if there's no empirical evidence of my departure, then it shall not be so. Verse 11 says, Then it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, isn't that interesting? A chariot comes for him, takes him up in a whirlwind. He is going to be a, he is going to ride that chariot into the sky. Now, there's a reason I've stated it that way. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But remember, what happens when Elijah goes to heaven is that he rides that chariot into the sky. And then in verse 12, Elisha saw it. Now he's got that empirical evidence. God's given him the double portion. And he cried out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them uh, into two pieces. Now, what's going on here is, first of all, we have this anointing that takes place between Elijah and Elisha and later John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. Now, what happens in both cases is the heavens open and something descends from heaven. In the case of Elijah, the chariot descended. In the case of uh, John, uh, the dove, the, ho- uh, as the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus, and God the Father speaks. So there is that parallel. Now, Elisha asks for a double portion. The double portion is the inheritance that goes to the firstborn son. There were other prophets that were there and that were present, and Elisha is saying, I want to be the heir of your ministry. I want the double portion. He is saying, I want to be viewed as your spiritual son and heir, your firstborn. That's the significance of that. When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. He declares the Sonship of Jesus Christ. So there is another parallel that takes place there. So, that was the third point of comparison. Elijah and John the Baptist both anoint their successors in the Jordan River. Fourth point of comparison is Elisha, is given empirical validation of his role. He's given empirical validation of his role so that he sees the uh, the glory cloud come down from heaven 
and the departure of, of Elijah. In the same way, you have empirical validation of Jesus at the Jordan because all those who were, who were standing there to, to come down to John to be baptized heard the voice of God from heaven. And they could have taken out their little Olympic MP3 recorder and recorded that for posterity. It was an objective external uh, vocalization. It wasn't just something they heard or imagined uh, within their head. It was an external objective event. Then we also have evidence of the glory of Elijah. He's taken to heaven in glory and is glorified. How that happened, I don't know. He doesn't die. You have uh, two instances in the Old Testament. You have Enoch, which is before the flood. Enoch in Genesis chapter uh, 5 walks with God, and he was not, for he was taken to be with God. He just walked into heaven with God one day, and that was it. But there's obviously some sort of transfer uh uh, to glorification that occurs. He didn't go to heaven because no one went to heaven until after the cross, but there was some sort of uh, transfer that happens apart from death. Don't ask me how that happened. I don't know. But it happens in his case. It happened with Elijah. And then if Elijah is the one who literally comes back during the tribulation, then Elijah is going to get, that, uh, get his physical body back again. And we just don't know how all of that is going to work. So, Elijah appears in Matthew 17 to Jesus and Peter and James and John. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. So, he unveils his glory so that they can see him in his divine glory. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And they are also glorified in a glorified state. And... Um, So in Matthew 17, we learn even more as we skip down to about verse 10. As they come down, his disciples ask him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And we've talked about that already in terms of its reference to Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. And then Jesus says, But I say to you, now, this is where it gets interesting. This is the what if that might have or could have occurred. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. See, that's a reference to John the Baptist. That Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Now, when in the first chapter of John, the Pharisees first came out to, to the Jordan when John the Baptist was, was uh, uh, beginning to baptize and said, Are you Elijah? And he said, No, I'm not. But Jesus is saying, I say to you, Elijah has come already. They did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Now, we go back to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. We have another interesting interchange. This occurs between John the Baptist and he sends two of his uh, students, two of his disciples, 
to speak to Jesus, just to make sure Jesus is really the Messiah. I always find this to be somewhat interesting and encouraging. It's not that John is stupid or dense. John is Jesus' first cousin. He has heard the story of Jesus' birth, I don't know how many times, from his mother, Elizabeth. So he he knows this, but like all of us, there are times when things aren't quite working out the way we expected them to, and so we need a little uh, reconfirmation of things from the pastor or from God or from somebody to make sure we got it right and we, we really understood it. So when John hears in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to, and they said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? They just want a little additional confirmation. Now Jesus answered them in verse 4 and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now, normally, in most places, you'll see that people say this is a reference to Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may call trees of, may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, did you see in those two verses, or three verses, see any reference to the blind or to lepers or to bringing the dead to life? Only a reference to good tidings to the poor. The Reference here is actually a connection to Elisha and Elisha's ministry. For uh, Elisha is the one who performed these miracles in the Old Testament. He gave sight to the blind in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. He cured leprosy in 2 Kings chapter 5. He restored the dead to life in 2 Kings 4, 32 to 37. And Second Kings eight four and five and Second Kings thirteen twenty one, he brought good news to the poor in Second Kings four one through seven, seven one through two and eight six. I'll go over those references again for those who are trying to get them down. Sight to the blind is Second Kings six eighteen to twenty six eighteen to twenty cured leprosy. Second Kings five restored the dead to life. That's four thirty two to thirty seven eight four to five. 1321, 432 to 37, 845, 1321, and brought good news to the poor, poor, 4, 1 through 7, 7, 1 and 2, and 8, 6. Now, what's going on here? Jesus is identifying himself with Elisha, the successor of Elijah, just as Jesus is the successor to John the Baptist. And so he's saying, in effect, to John the Baptist, I'm doing the same kinds of things that are evidence of the Messiah who is to follow you as the one who prepared the way. Just And the pattern was Elijah and Elisha in the, uh, in the Old Testament. And then in Matthew uh, 11, 
uh, 6 and following, Jesus goes on to talk a little bit more about the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, he says in verse 7, As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Were you just stimulated because that was the uh, entertainment of the day to go watch this guy dressed in a camel's hair robe and eating locusts and honey and baptizing people? Why did you go out there? What did you go out to see? Verse 8, a man clothed in soft garments? No, verse 9, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is important. John the Baptist is greater than any prophet in the Old Testament. He's still in that Old Testament dispensation, but he was greater than any other prophet. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than Elisha. He's greater than Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He's greater than all of them. For this is he of whom it is written, verse 10, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Wow. That relates to believers, church-age believers, that Uh, There's a superiority related to church-age believers and those who will be in the kingdom of heaven, that is the millennial kingdom, because of the role of the Holy Spirit. They will be greater than John the Baptist. And he says in verse 12, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. That means that there's a battle going on, a spiritual warfare taking place, and as long as you are following the Lord the world system is going to have a target on your back and they are going to come after you uh, with violence. Uh, Matthew eleven thirteen for all the prophets and the law prophesied to John. And if you are willing to receive it, verse 14, he is Elijah who is to come. Ooh. Now he says this before the rejection by the Pharisees in Matthew 13. What Jesus is saying is, In the plan of God, if people had actually, if the Jews had actually accepted the offer of the kingdom, John would have been Elijah. Now that raises a couple of questions. So does that mean that that in the end times, is there going to be a literal return of Elijah or just someone in the spirit of Elijah? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll tell you when it happens. But there's this, this what if that is related to human volition. If they had accepted Jesus as Messiah, the kingdom would have come in. Elijah would, I mean, John the Baptist would have fulfilled that role as Elijah, as, the, uh, as Malachi had prophesied. But that didn't happen. So that means there is a yet future fulfillment of the Malachi 4, 5, and 6 passage, which means Elijah, or literally Elijah, or someone coming in the spirit of Elijah is going to fulfill that Malachi 4, 5, and 6 passage at the time of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And that puts us into Revelation chapter 11 and the two witnesses, which is what we'll cover on Sunday morning. 
And the point that we see here is that if we are taking a stand for truth, a stand for God, uh, we will be targeted. Uh, just our very presence. And the more pagan the culture becomes around us, the more you're not going to be able to run and hide. And they're going to come after everybody at one level or another simply because those who have rejected the truth cannot stand to have anybody present who affirms truth. They just go apoplectic over the very fact that somebody is going to be uh, taking a stand for the truth and that you actually believe the Bible. You're just some kind of a nutcase. You're just just uh, one of the worst things in the world that you can have these evangelical believers going to a voting booth. And it's not going to be very long before you will hear uh, more and more people saying uh, things of that nature. So we can take uh, a lot of uh, instruction from Elijah because Elijah is going to begin to con- is confronting them and God is confronting them through Elijah. And everything we're going to see in the rest of this chapter, in the next chapter, in the next chapter, is God tweaking the nose of the pagans. Because God isn't politically correct. And God's not going to sit back and say, well, you know, we're just going to let it work itself out and see what happens. No, God wants, he's going to provide evidence of the guilt of the pagans And at the same time he's providing that evidence, he's also reaching out to prove who he is. And so God multitasks. And as he brings judgment against them, he's also extending to them the offer of grace and salvation. And as we've studied in the introduction to this, uh, Elijah's dealing with the false religious system of Baal worship. Baal worship ultimately was a devotion to a false god, a false system of thinking that claimed it to be that it was the god Baal who would provide prosperity, who would provide rain and uh, the proper weather, everything for the prosperity of the crops so that in agricultural society it was important to placate Baal so that you would have um, life and profit. And everything that we see here is a polemic. Almost every line is a polemic, a challenge to the belief in Baal. And that is important for us to understand because we're so divorced from the culture and what's going on in uh, the worship of, of Baal that often we don't understand how active God is in attacking the presuppositions of the false religious system around him. And from the very first statement that Elijah makes, as the God of Israel lives, because your God just a piece of wood. He doesn't live. And Elijah then says, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years. Well, it is uh, Baal that claims to give not only rain but dew. In the, 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 the bread basket of Israel is the Jezreel Valley, also referred to as the Valley of of uh, Armageddon or Armageddon, which is uh, just below it. Uh, We'll see some pictures showing where the tell of the ancient city of Megiddo is located overlooking this enormous valley, also called the Valley of Esdralon. And the dew is so heavy in that valley from the fall until the spring 
that even in times when there's no rain, the dew is so heavy that you can still farm. It provides enough moisture to where you can eke by. And this is why Elijah is go- it says there's not going to be any dew or rain. God is in complete control and Baal isn't. And everything that happens once he leaves the court after verse 2 is designed to show God is the God who provides food. He's the God who provides prosperity. He's the God who takes care of us. And Baal doesn't and can't and won't. So just, and, and all of this culminates in the slaughter of the pagans and the pagan priests, not the pagans, but the pagan priests in the 18th chapter where they're all executed according to law. So God is engaged on the offensive through the uh, ministry of the prophets as well as in the church. But it's how you engage. There are a lot of people who want to get out there in wrong ways to engage. So we have to clarify that as we go through the study. We'll get back to that next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at uh, these things to see how Elijah fits within the plan and purpose of history and that as we look back on his ministry uh, almost 3,000 years ago, we realized that there is a future ministry of either Elijah or one like him in the tribulation period in the future, all designed to glorify your name and to demonstrate the truth of your word. Father, we stand in that same tradition as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are to be witnesses taking captive every thought for Jesus Christ and that we are to be taking a stand for truth uh, continuously in our lives. And we pray that you'd give us the courage and the conviction, the knowledge, the training to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.